If you would, please, would you return in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. When we were in kindergarten, maybe first grade, we were taught that we have five senses. They are taste, smell, touch, hearing, and sight. And I imagine that since that day, most of us have engaged in a hypothetical conversation. We were asked, which of the five senses would you most fear losing? And I think we will agree that losing the ability to see would be the most devastating. So much of what we do, even the simplest tasks of daily life, require the ability to see. For those of us who attended public school, what we were not taught about the five senses is that these senses were given to us as a gift of God. And if we have all five of our senses, we are very blessed. But if we can paraphrase a verse from the book of Job, what God giveth, God can take away. While most people are born with all five senses, there are some who are born without all five. And we will meet a man today who was born blind a man who lived in darkness all of his life. And because of his blindness, had little choice but to sit by the road and beg. That is, until Jesus changed his life. As we begin a new chapter today, John chapter 9, let's briefly review how the last chapter Ended. In the previous chapter, Jesus was in the temple, and there he made several key proclamations about who he is and why he had come. Two were of extreme importance because they came in the form of I am statements. The first revealed his messianic identity. At John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus called upon the people to follow him because he had come to deliver his people. As the Messiah, he would lead his people out of darkness and into the light of eternal life. In the second I am statement, Jesus proclaimed his divinity. He said, before Abraham was, I am. With this proclamation, Jesus did not follow the words I am with any additional qualifying statement. He ended his thought by declaring, I am. And this accomplished two things. It communicates his timeless and eternal existence, and second, it evoked 
the personal and sacred name of God. When Moses heard the voice from the burning bush on Mount Sinai, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them that I am sent you. The people who were gathered in the temple, both the religious leaders and the crowds, they understood the meaning of Jesus' words. They understood he was declaring his divinity. And that is why, at the end of chapter 8, judging Jesus guilty of blasphemy, the people took up stones and they were ready to kill him. But because it was not yet his time, Jesus was supernaturally hidden from their eyes, and he went through the midst of them. For a moment, God blinded their eyes. He matched their spiritual blindness by striking them with a temporary physical blindness, and Jesus, leaving the temple, passed them by. As Jesus, who is the light of the world, leaves the temple, we may wonder, will anyone believe? And what we will learn in this chapter is that the answer is yes. The Apostle John will introduce us to a man who is born blind, and yet he will see the light. In a profound irony, it will take a blind man to see the light of Christ. Jesus will open this man's eyes and cure him of his blindness. But it is not just physical sight that he will gain. He will gain spiritual eyes, which will enable him to see that Jesus is the Christ. While the crowd in the temple wanted to stone him, this man, in the end, will worship him. For many, this chapter is a great favorite because it is from this man that we will hear those immortal words, I once was blind, but now I see. Before we meet this man, there is an important preliminary piece of information that bears repeating. And it concerns the issue of blindness. There is not a single incident recorded in the Old Testament of anyone having their sight restored. There is evidence of the prophets performing great miracles, but there is not a single instance of anyone giving sight to the blind. And the reason for that is giving sight to the blind was a power reserved only for God himself. Listen, please, to Psalm 146.8. It is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. And perhaps even more to the point, as we begin our study in chapter 9, it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah that giving sight to the blind would be a power belonging to the Messiah. Listen, please, to Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Randy read these at the beginning of our service. And these verses speak. Isaiah is foretelling the com about the coming Christ. And Isaiah says this, 
Actually, God says this through Isaiah. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Aside from the resurrection, Jesus giving sight to the blind is perhaps the most decisive of all his miracles because his giving sight to the blind is the evidence that Jesus is the one foretold by the prophets. He is the Christ. And we will suppose that because giving sight to the blind is such an important piece of evidence that John devotes an entire chapter to the story of this man born blind. Let's go, please, to John chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was born blind, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? While we can be certain that Jesus has left the temple, we are not told his precise location as to where Jesus meets this man born blind. We do know that he is still in Jerusalem as will be shown by an upcoming detail about the Pool of Siloam, which we know to be in Jerusalem. It is very likely that while Jesus has left the temple proper, he is still in the area outside the temple. I say that because the area outside the temple was a popular place for those who were afflicted with blindness and other infirmities, they would wait there and beg for money. Visitors to the temple would be more inclined to give money to those who are suffering physical ailments. We are not told how the disciples know that this man was born blind. It may be that this man was a well-known figure who has sat begging in this same spot for many years. And because he had become sort of a fixture outside the temple, some people, including the disciples, may have learned his story and that he was born blind. And so as Jesus and his disciples see the man, this sparks a question from the twelve. Rabbi, meaning teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was caused to be born blind. It is both telling and sad that the disciples do not talk to the man. Instead, they talk about him. They talk about him as if he is not even there. Sadly, people with disabilities are often mistreated by those who do not suffer from disability. Somehow they're treated then less than. 
And this should be an important reminder to us to apply that important biblical principle that tells us to treat others as we wish to be treated. As they ask their question about this man, there's no evidence of any compassion from the twelve. Instead, this man is for them a theological puzzle to be solved. They see him as a case study. They want to know who's responsible, who who sinned. Now, it may be that their clinical approach is the result of a way of thinking that was very common in first century Judaism. It was thought that all suffering, including disability, disease, financial ruin, it was all a consequence of sin. But I think we will quickly realize this was not unique to the first century. Consider our modern day. When we hear that someone has lung cancer, what is generally the first question we ask? Did that person smoke? If someone has cirrhosis of the liver, what do we ask? Did he drink? We understand, we may even assume that some diseases are the result of our own choices. But in the minds of the 12 disciples, this blind man presents an unusual case. Leon Morris expresses the dilemma very well when he writes this. The disciples have grave difficulty in seeing how this man could have sinned before he was even born. And it is not much easier to think, says Morris, that a man should bear such terrible punishment for the sin of his parents. The disciples are sure someone sinned, but they don't know who. And so they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Let's go, please, to verse 3 as we hear Jesus give his response. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus begins his answer by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus is not denying that sin can result in harmful consequences. Back in chapter 5, after Jesus healed a lame man, he alluded to the fact that sin can and does cause physical consequences. On that occasion, Jesus healed the man, telling him, take up your bed and walk. And when that man did walk, Jesus said to him, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And so Jesus has made clear that sin does have consequences, both physical and spiritual. But in this case of the man born blind, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. 
Jesus is not suggesting that his parents were sinless. There is no one sinless save one. Only that this specific case, this blindness, is not a consequence of personal sin. Some people are born blind. Some people get lung cancer, having never smoked, or cirrhosis of the liver, having never picked up a drink. Many troubles and diseases, they come at no fault of our own, but they are instead the result of living in a fallen world. After Jesus says that neither his parents nor this man sin, Jesus goes on to explain the why of this man's blindness. Jesus says he is blind that the works of God should be revealed in him. Jesus redirects the disciples away from their attempt to figure out who is to blame to the greater purpose of this blindness. And the purpose of this blindness is that the works of God should be revealed in him. This statement has presented a line of attack for the critics of Christianity. They point to this statement and accuse God of being unfair and cruel. This line of reasoning is captured by one commentator who writes this. It seems to say that God did not blind the man in order to punish him for some wrongdoing. He did it merely to show off his power by finally sending Jesus around to heal him. Well, the critics of Christianity accuse God of being cruel because this man had to spend his entire life in darkness, in blindness, before God used him to display his power. Well, I suggest we consider this from a much different perspective. Although this is a perspective the unbeliever will be unable to appreciate, let's bear in mind, that when this man's eyes are opened, this man will put his faith in Christ. And as a result of that faith, this man will receive the greatest of gifts, a gift that far outstrips his ability to see, and that gift is the gift of eternal life. For whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting Life. Although this man did suffer for years, the question becomes what is that suffering compared to having the assurance of eternal life? What is even a lifetime of suffering compared to the assurance of eternal life where there is no suffering, no crying, and no pain? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While some will see in this man's suffering a cruel God, I see a merciful and generous 
and giving God. I think it is often the case, it's not always the case, but it's often the case that God will use some circumstance, some illness, some suffering to draw us to himself. If there were no suffering in this world, if everything was precisely and exactly how we wanted it, how many people would call upon the name of the Lord confessing that we need a Savior? As Jesus explains that the works of God will be revealed in this man, let's notice that Jesus speaks of works, plural, works. This man was born blind that the works of God should be revealed in him. And we will find at least two works demonstrated in this man. The first, of course, is the miracle that Jesus is about to perform, which will give this man something that he never had, sight. Imagine being, never having seen, and then suddenly being able to see. And second, God will not only open his eyes physically, he will open his eyes spiritually. Because he will be able to see with his heart that Jesus is the Christ. After Jesus says that God's works will be displayed in this man, he goes on to say that he, as the Messiah, is the agent of these divine works. He, go, he does that by repeating a statement he made while he was in the temple. He says again, I am the light of the world. Look, look please at four and five. Jesus says, I, some have we, must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And of course, he is still the light of the world today. Amen? Now, verse 4 is a difficult verse. Verse 4. And because it is difficult, the explanations proposed by biblical commentators varies widely. As we examine it, let's observe that verse 4 is composed of two clauses. The first is about what must occur during the day. And what must occur during the day are the works of God. The second clause is about a transition to night. And during the night, no one, and I underscore no one, can work. The first difficulty that we will address is that the traditional translation offered by the King James and the New King James, they both have Jesus saying, I must work the works of God. However, most other translations have we. We must work the works of God. And this word we is the literal translation according to the Greek text. Now, I don't know why the King James editors use the word I instead of we. For obvious reasons, I wasn't there. But the most likely reason is because some scholars believe that although Jesus does use the plural word we, 
He's only referring to himself. If that is the case, he might be using the plural of majesty, also referred to as the royal we. For example, when the Queen of England is speaking about herself, she might say, we are not amused, right? She's speaking about herself, but she uses the plural of majesty. If Jesus is speaking about himself, then he must do the works of God while it is day. And traditionally, while it is day has been understood to be the time of his incarnation, the time while he dwells with men. If that is the understanding, the second clause goes on to say that the night is coming when no one can work. This, it is said by scholars, refers to Christ's death, when he can no longer do the miraculous works in person, in person. But that presents a problem, because as Jesus says, it, at the time of night, no one can work. And yet we know the disciples, after the day of Pentecost, did great miracles, great works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And since that is the case, it might be better to translate the first clause as, we must work the works of God. This we would include all believers. And this is supported by scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we, meaning believers, we are the co-workers of God. Which begs the question, what are the works of God? Well, the works of God are so vast, we could never number them all. But Jesus did tell us earlier in this gospel, what is the supreme work? In John chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus said this, This is the work of him who sent me. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore, to do the work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. This is the work of God, that you believe in whom he sent. To do the work of God is to believe in Jesus, and then in faith, we invite others to follow Christ, who is the light of the world. He is the light that leads us out of darkness and into eternal life. If this is the meaning of the first clause, that we, as believers, are the co-laborers with Christ, how then do we understand the second clause, where Jesus says, the night is coming when no one can work. Well, the traditional understanding is that the day refers to Christ's time of incarnation, the night refers to that period after his crucifixion and his return to the Father. But here's the problem. Despite consulting the work of many scholars, I could find no explanation as to why after Christ's departure, no one can work. How can the traditional explanation stand when we know that after Christ's return to the Father, we are to continue the work of God by 
proclaiming the gospel to others. Therefore, I see only two remaining possibilities. One possibility is that this night refers to our own death. And at that time, we cannot work, meaning we will have no more opportunity to witness to our unbelieving friends and family. But even when we die, it will not be the case that no one can work. Because after we are gone, God willing, there will be others to carry on the work, which leaves the other possibility. If we take this statement literally, such that no one can work, meaning there will be no further opportunity to bring others to Christ, I suggest this points to the day of judgment. Therefore, I am suggesting that we, that is Christ and his church, we must work to bring others to know Jesus. And this work is urgent because no one knows the day or hour of Christ's return. And when he comes, he is not coming to bring salvation, but judgment. Let's go, please, to verse 6. As John now squarely focuses on the blind man. Verse 6. When he, Jesus, had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It may interest us to know that in the ancient world, it was believed that saliva had healing properties. Modern studies have shown there may be some validity to this belief. According to the Dental Research Institute, it's part of the University of California, it is said that saliva has antimicrobial and healing agents. This, they say, may help to explain why a burn or a cut inside our mouth heals five times faster than a cut on our skin. And so maybe saliva does have healing properties. But while the ancient world thought saliva had healing properties, this would have been rejected by the religious leaders of Israel. That is because the religious leaders of Israel saw the use of saliva as a remedy used by the pagan Gentile world, and so they rejected it. But in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus use saliva twice. And on this occasion, with the healing of the blind man, we again see Jesus using saliva. But let's notice that in this case, it is not saliva alone that is applied to this man. Instead, the saliva is used in conjunction with some dirt from the ground to make what the King James calls clay or the NIV calls mud. At this point, we need to ask a very important question. Did Jesus need to use this mixture of saliva and dirt 
in order to heal this man. I see some people shaking their heads. No. This is not some this is it's not necessary for him to use some some home remedy. As we have followed Christ's ministry, we have seen Jesus perform numerous miracles only by the power of his word. He simply speaks the word and it is so. Therefore, this mixture of saliva and dirt was not necessary. And since these ingredients were not necessary, we will conclude that they may hold symbolic meaning. Unfortunately, if that is the case, if they do have symbolic meaning, John does not tell us their meaning. But a possible meaning was suggested nearly 2,000 years ago in the opening centuries of the church. To introduce this possibility, let me first tell you that in the Greek text, John uses an unexpected pronoun. That is the word his. And in most English Bibles, it is left untranslated. We don't see the word his in our English Bibles. Thus, Jesus anointed the eyes of the blind man with his clay, with his mud. What this pronoun confirms is that this mixture was no longer merely the sum of its parts. It has been transformed by, for his divine purpose, such that it became his clay, his mud. Let's consider now the suggested symbolic meaning first proposed in the early centuries of the church by the church fathers. It was said that Jesus forming this clay or mud is meant to remind us of the pinnacle of the creation narrative. Genesis 2.7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. When Jesus uses this dust of the ground and then makes it his with the contents of his mouth, we are seeing a creative work of God. And if this is the symbolic meaning, we are seeing a work of creation. And it may be that the Lord is not working to repair this man's eyes, which have never seen. Instead, perhaps beneath this clay are a pair of newly created eyes, brand new eyes. As the commentator Edward Clink writes, the moment described by John is not between a miracle worker and an ailing blind man, but between the creator and his creation. Let's go please to verse 7. After Jesus anoints the eyes of the blind man with his clay, he says this at verse 7, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. It is this detail about the pool of Siloam that confirms that Jesus is still in Jerusalem. This is the first mention of the pool of Siloam in John's gospel 
although the name of this pool will already sound familiar to us. And that is because we heard about it during the Feast of the Tabernacles, during the Feast of Tabernacles. The pool of Siloam will sound familiar to us because it was from this pool that the high priest collected water. He then carried it back up to the top of the Temple Mount, about a mile away, and the high priest poured that water from the pool of Siloam out on the altar. Why? Because they were pouring it out as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice was accompanied by an appeal to heaven as they asked God for more water, for rain, to nourish the crops for the coming growing season. Now, 700 years before Christ, the pool of Siloam was built by Hezekiah, then the king of Judah. After the Assyrians invaded northern Israel, and took those people into captivity, King Hezekiah in the south, king of Judah, and headquartered in Jerusalem, he took steps to ready the city of Jerusalem against foreign invasion. He ordered that an underground tunnel be dug to carry fresh water into the city. A tunnel was dug from the Gihon Spring, The Gihon Spring is located in a valley, and that valley is between the mountain where Jerusalem sits and the distant mountain, also known as the Mount of Olives. And so a tunnel was dug from the Gihon Spring into lower Jerusalem to bring fresh water into the city so that if the Assyrians laid siege to the city, the inhabitants would have a supply of fresh water inside the city walls. As Jesus sends this man to wash at the pool of Siloam, it may have ritualistic purposes. Remember, ceremonial washing is a very important part of Jewish life. But it is more likely that the significance of Jesus sending the man to the pool of Siloam lies not in the washing, but in the name of the pool. Notice that John intentionally points out that the Hebrew name of the pool is sent. Jesus sent the man to the pool named sent. Originally, it is likely that the name of this pool was derived because water was sent through the tunnel into this pool. But now this man is sent to the pool. Why? To follow the command of him who is the sent one. Remember in the temple scene, in the previous chapter, Jesus repeatedly told the people that he had come down from heaven and had been sent by God. The people in the temple would not accept his word. They were ready to kill him. But let's compare their stubborn rejection to the response of this blind man. Let's focus on the second sentence of verse 7, which describes his response. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus gave this man two commands. 
Go and wash. And John tells us that is exactly what he did. He went and washed. We see from this man a clear example of obedience. And with this obedience, this man demonstrates an uncanny family resemblance to his ancestor, Abraham. God told Abraham, go to the land I will show you. And in faith, Abraham went to the promised land. The blind man has shown more faith than anyone Jesus encountered in the temple. They claim to be the children of Abraham, but the crowds and the religious leaders, they would not hear, heed Jesus' words. And what happened as a result of them not heeding Jesus' words? Jesus passed them by. But this man took Jesus' words to heart. He did as Jesus said. And because he responded in faith, he came back from the pool of Siloam seeing He went and washed and came back seeing. This will not be his only encounter with Jesus. His journey of faith has only just begun. This man will meet Jesus again. And when he does, he will look into the face of Jesus and he will worship. But first, this man will be made to walk through a gauntlet of suspicious minds both from the public and from the religious leaders, who will doubt the truth of this man's healing. They will make all kinds of excuses to explain away the miracle that's standing directly in front of them. But no one will be able to argue with his response when he says, there's one thing that I know. I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have eyes to see, and most importantly, that you gave us spiritual eyes to see the truth of Christ and his gospel. And now, as the co-laborers of Christ, give us opportunity to proclaim the gospel while it is day, as we work the works of God. Amen.